to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's call yesterday at the ceremony in Tulsa to pass the For the People Act in the Senate to ensure a level playing field in the next election that the Republicans shamelessly planned to rig. Joining us is a signatory to a letter by 100 experts on democracy warning about the Republican threat to American democracy, David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week, where his latest article is, Where are the Trump Ghazis? Investigating the Trump administration's misdeeds will be good for democracy and Democrats. The author of Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and his latest, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. We'll discuss the possibility of carving out voting rights as an exception to the filibuster in the Senate, which may not meet with Senator Manchin's approval, and the urgent need to mobilize Americans in opposition to the Trump-led Republican putsch to incapacitate our democracy and turn it into a one-party autocracy led by a wannabe dictator. Then we'll speak with Adele Stan, the director of Right Wing Watch, a project of People for the American Way, where her latest article is Far-Right Trump Fans Plan to Hang Lawmakers Within Hours of His Call to Wild Protests. New research has revealed that January the 6th rioters plotted to murder U.S. officials weeks before the attack. We'll discuss how the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys heeded Trump's December 19 call, and according to court documents, the leader of the Oath Keepers warned his followers they were headed for a, quote, bloody, bloody civil war. Then finally, we'll examine the candidates Iran's supreme leader approved to run and the one most likely to be the next president, a hardline head of the judiciary behind mass executions, who is favoured to replace Rouhani. Nada Hashemi, director of the Centre for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, joins us to discuss how this deeply unpopular theocratic regime is circling the wagons, helped in part by Trump's hardline policies that have united the Iranian people in the face of external pressure. And joining us now, David Farris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he's a signatory to the open letter at the New America Foundation with a 100 other experts on democracy, statement of concern, the threat to American democracy and the need for national voting and election administration standards. And his latest article of the week is, Where are the Trump Ghazis? Investigating the Trump administration's misdeed would be good for democracy and Democrats. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Ferris. Thanks for having me on the show, Ian. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And at the ceremony honoring the victims of the massacre in Tulsa 100 years ago yesterday, President Biden made a very powerful speech talking about the real history of what really happened in grim detail. But he also managed to weave in his concern that the priority has to be to stop voter suppression and have a level playing field in future elections. And it's very clear 
to me, and it should be clear to most Americans, that the Republicans under Trump, he controls and owns the Republican Party now, they've decided rather than compete, they'll cheat. So what's your sense of, I know you wrote that book some time back, Time to Fight Dirty, I guess, would you consider what happened in Texas with the Democrats walking out of the legislature fighting dirty? You know, I, I think how we describe it is um, using all of the power that is at your disposal in, in terms of the legal order. Um, and certainly it was nice to see some fighting, some fighting spirit from, from Texas Democrats. Uh, uh, ultimately, Greg Abbott's going to get his bill in, in Texas because they have the numbers and they have the votes. But I think it's, um, it's you know, it's a, it's a good sign. It's inspirational when, when Democrats make a stand like that and try to draw attention to the outrage and, and the injustice. I think the, the bigger problem is that these um, these voter suppression bills, these very harsh voter suppression bills are being uh, introduced in, in sort of copycat fashion in, in Repub Republican-led states all over the country. And it's not just about driving down Democratic turnout. It's about maintaining the, the levers of control in enough states that the sort of the, the, the plot that they ran in 2020 to overturn the election results could actually work in 2024. So it's, um, it's not just that it's making the electoral playing field more uneven than it already is, and it's already quite uneven. Um, it's that it's enabling this very nefarious and very scary plot against democracy that, that former President Trump is still leading um, the Republican Party into. Um, and so that's, that's where I think the, 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 the major concern comes from, from, from democracy scholars. It's it's that uh, the problems with American democracy, which were already there, which I, I you know, I, I participated in warning about a few years ago, have gotten worse <laughs> at the same time as the Republican Party has become increasingly divorced from any kind of commitment to procedural democracy whatsoever. And those two things together are really scary. Well, it's a one-two punch, isn't it? On election day, they get to suppress the vote. And then the days and weeks after they get to both count the vote and certify the vote. And in the Texas bill that the Democrats walked out of the chamber in protest of, one of the provisions is that a partisan Republican judge can just sort of wake up on the wrong side of the bed and decide, I just don't like the look of these results. Without any evidence whatsoever, he can declare the loser the winner. What a deal. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's why... I refer to this movement and the GOP as as proto authoritarianism. You know, it's um, the the effort in total is is to create a, a structure of authority that's circular. You know, um, where you have a gerrymandered map that leads to a, a state legislature that represents a minority. That minority state legislature draws up new voter suppression measures, um, and then those measures are upheld in court because the courts are appointed by um, either the minority state legislature or nationally. Um, a, a, a minority in the Senate and then um, the, the Supreme Court, which represents a minority of the country, will then uphold all of these practices as they have done with gerrymandering. Um, and when that happens, it's like you look at it and you think, well, at what point can the voters intervene here and actually change the leadership? And what the Republicans are trying to prevent us from doing is, is, is being able to change the leadership of either the states or, or the country through free and fair elections. And that's uh, that's just not what democracy is, right? Um, and, and, and we really have to do something about it. So normal people would not enter a race that's clearly rigged or any kind of competition where they know that the rules are stacked against them. It's just futile and it's humiliating. And so 
is there any way for the Democrats to basically say, we're not going to participate in this election, it's a farce. It's just criminal what you people have done. You know, this is not Belarus. This is the United States of America. I think that that's an option on the table in the future. I think right now, um, especially given that uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, a handful of Democrats in the Senate refuse to act, it, it looks like we are going to have to fight the 2022 and 2024 elections on, on the playing field that we have. And I think walking away from it and boycotting it um, while it might feel good, uh, it's, it's just going to abandon the battlefield for Republicans to, to win even more decisive victories than they might otherwise win. And if they do that, you know, if they win super majorities instead of majorities, right, then we're really in trouble because then they can start rewriting the Constitution. So I think that we have to stay in the fight, but we also have to recognize that the fight is not fair, um, that Democrats control the government right now. Yes, the, the majorities are narrow, but they're there. And we could address some of these problems if we if we put enough pressure on the people who are standing in the way. I think at the moment, that's where we should be directing our energies um, is, is to try to pull out all the stops to see whether we can get Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin to, to sign on to the project of doing what, what I think are minimal democracy reinforcement measures, um, let alone addressing some of the loopholes in our uh, electoral college laws um, that, that would allow this plot to succeed after 2024. So for now, I, I know it's a it's a tough sell when um, when Republicans are out there passing these ridiculous bills and, and Democrats are just kind of sitting on their hands. It's a tough sell to tell people to stay engaged, but I think that that's um, that's the only option right now, you know. And I think there's a, there's a a parallel risk on the other side, where the message coming out of the National Republican Party over and over again is that elections are rigged and, and there's fraud and. Um, Democrats are going to are going to are going to win no matter what, and that also could drive down turnout for Republicans. I think, as we saw in Georgia in January, so the whole discourse has has <laughs> has certain kind of risks for, for for both sides here. But I think, as as the as the people fighting on behalf of, of procedural democracy and and the preservation of our our institutional order, I think that we have to stay in the fight for now. So, in other words, you're saying that the Democrats should focus where they have the votes in the House and narrowly in the Senate, uh, as opposed to in Texas where they don't have the votes and across the country where Republicans control the legislature. So the real action at the end of the day will come down to Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. And again, I'm speaking with David Farris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week. He's the author of Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he is a signatory to an open letter at the New America Foundation with 100 other experts on democracy, Statement of Concern, the threat to American democracy and the need for national voting and election administration standards. And he has an article at the week, Where are the Trump Ghazis? Investigating the Trump administration's misdeeds would be good for democracy and Democrats. So my understanding, David, is that the White House have made a calculation that their best chance for the Democrats winning in 2022 and in 2024 is for Joe Biden to deliver to the American people. And he's done quite a bit, but obviously he's up against the wall now with the obdurate Republicans and the filibuster 
in this phony negotiation they're doing over infrastructure. The only reason that they're throwing some money up in the ante a little bit is because McConnell doesn't want him, Biden, to go the route that he went with the first tranche, which is reconciliation. So they're obviously... Why you negotiate with these people, I don't know, because they're clearly only interested in getting back in power and running out the clock. So given that that seems to be Biden's strategy, and I guess he's figured out that most American voters don't know what a filibuster is, and so it's going to be hard to run on making democracy itself, both at home and abroad, the central issue of survival here that we should be facing, whereas that is, in fact... The priority, it doesn't look like the Biden administration see that as a political priority. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, I think that Biden remains focused on on policy victories. And the I guess the dawning realization that seems to be enveloping the White House in the last few days is that they can't have any policy victories if they don't nuke the filibuster and they can't have any policy victories if they can't get Manchin and Cinema, maybe Diane Feinstein to to sign on to either an elimination or some sort of serious reform of the filibuster rule so the Democrats can pass laws and pass their agenda with 50 votes. And um, I, I think that I think that Biden had some hope that that maybe through the magic of bipartisanship that they could get 10 Republican votes for something. But the fact they couldn't re- produce 10 Republican votes for the January 6th commission I think is evidence that they're not going to, they can't get 10 Republican votes for anything. I don't think they get 10 Republican votes for a declaration that puppies are cute. Um, it's, it's just uh, the McConnell is dead set on obstruction. I think there are a few Republicans left who would like to see the government work, but most of them think that obstruction pays and that obstruction is the path back into power. And they're not wrong about that. Um, but the filibuster is precisely the thing that is standing in between these moderates and the ability to cooperate with a different incentive structure. And so it's very frustrating um, to see uh, just a couple of Democrats holding this whole thing up. And in his speech yesterday, Biden did finally kind of ob- obliquely go after Manchin and Cinema for uh, for holding up the agenda. And I think it's the first salvo in what might be a, not a Trump-style uh, maligning of these people, <laughs> but a more full right. effort to... To, well, to they could just it. walk across the aisle and it's all over, right? Right. I mean, it's yeah, they could for sure. Mm. Um, I think that the, the, the incentives of, of American politics these days means that that's the end of their career because neither of them would win a Republican primary in their state. Right. Uh, and so I think that that's why none of the Republicans flipped under Trump, even though there were multiple opportunities for, for three or four Republicans to come up to the Democratic side, put a stop to Trump's whole agenda you know, they could have said to Chuck Schumer, like, we're not going to vote with you on anything. <laughs> right. we just, we're going to stay here until Trump releases his tax returns or until Trump does this and that. Um, and the, the fact that they never did that, even though several of them were retiring, suggests yeah. that uh, that party switching is, has really fallen out of favor. And so sure, but, but David, the only reason we still have the Affordable Care Act is John McCain's thumbs down. Right. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, that was a yeah. hugely consequential moment. Right. Um, but let, let me ask you this, though. Do you think that you could do a carve-out just for SB1 and HR1? And after all, Kirsten Cinema is a co-sponsor of SB1. So Manchin keeps talking about he doesn't want to destroy the government because of the filibuster, but the filibuster has nothing to do with the Constitution. 
it's mo the modern filibuster began, uh, I think, about 2007 under McConnell, where you can just phone it in. It's, mm. it's a complete corruption of anything that resembles American democracy. So why in God's name is he elevating it to this idea that if you break the filibuster, you break the government? I mean, is it possible you could just carve out SB1 and just make it a one-off? Yeah, I mean, they can do whatever they want, right? I mean, like, they, they, the, the majority writes the rules of the Senate. Um, and so if, if the majority wants to change the rules to say, we can set aside the 60-vote threshold for uh, for voting rights bills, then they can do exactly that if that's what they want to do. The, the problem is that they they haven't even really been able to get Manchin and Cinema on record as saying that they would support that. Um, and so I'd like to see the filibuster just gone because it's an anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian institution that you, you really can't find in this form in any other democracy in, in the world, any functioning democracy in the world. Um, and it's it causes paralysis and, and cynicism. Uh, I don't understand what, what the message Democrats are going to run on next year. You know, it's like, I know we were in power, but we need more. Right. <laughs> the kids do anything with it, so we need you to give us more power than you already gave us. Uh, that's a losing message. It's a losing message for Dems. It's a losing message for Cinema and Mansion. Um, and so, uh, sure, they can do a carve-out. Um, that would be great. That's better than nothing. But um, I think even if they carved it out and they passed the, the voting rights bill and they passed HR1, um, that's not enough to run on next year. It's just really not. I mean, it may feel like that from the vantage point of the present because Biden is popular, the COVID relief bill is popular, um, and everybody's kind of feeling good about themselves. But the environment's going to be very different in a year. You know, 15 months is a, it's just an eternity in politics. And there's just no question there's going to be some kind of scandal. There's something that's going to happen. Sure going to decrease its popularity and they, they need more to run on than the relief bill and, and one carve out to the to the filibuster rule well but at least it would level the playing field i mean that's what you you have and a hundred others have called for in this statement uh, the threats to american democracy the need for national voting and election administration standards you're all scholars of, of democracy and it's clearly an urgent issue. I mean, uh, it's clear as hell to me that we are heading in towards a form of American fascism, you know, where, you know, the Republicans are shameless. They don't seem to care about democracy. There was a coup attempt on Jamie the Sixth against the United States government, and the coup plotter himself is now in charge of the Republican Party. It's all of it's as clear as day. So, yeah, I don't know. So it's terrifying, and I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I stand behind the letter. I think that these reforms are critical. Um, but I, I uh, you know, I didn't get to write the additional paragraph <laughs> saying this is just step one. You know, that there there are multiple threats to our democracy uh, unfolding in, in front of us. Um, the, the reform bills that are stalled in the Senate are, are one way to address it. They will make the elections next year fairer. They'll make the elections in 2024 fairer. And I absolutely think we have to pass those, those bills into law. But I also think we have to be clear eyed that it might not be enough um, and, and that, that we, need to, we need to think together about ways that we can shore up democracy um, even, even beyond some of the things that are, that are called for in those, in those bills. Well, David Farris, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on the show. I, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, raise the alarm as widely as possible. So. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> the alarm bell is ringing here at Background Briefing. And I thank you again, David Ferris, Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to the week. He's the author of Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. And his latest book is The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he is a signatory to the open letter at the New America Foundation with a 100 other experts on democracy. Statement of concern, the threat to American democracy and the need for national voting and election administration standards. And he has an article at the week, where are the Trump Ghazis investigating Trump administration's misdeeds would be good for democracy and Democrats. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys heeded Trump's December 19th call and according to Cork documents, the leader of the Oath Keepers warned his followers they were headed for a bloody, bloody civil war. You are listening to the Background Briefing with Ian Masters on WMNF Tampa. And hurricanes, lightning, flooding and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we are committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app, Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Network, Emergency Radio Network, is supported by WMNF and Citizens Property Insurance, online at citizensfla.com. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adele Stan, a journalist based in Washington, D.C., who specializes in covering the intersection of religion and politics. She is currently the director of Right Wing Watch, a project of People for the American Way, where her latest article is, Far-right Trump fans plan to hang lawmakers within hours of his call for wild protests. New research has revealed that January the 6th rioters plotted to murder U.S. officials weeks before the attack. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. It's great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the critical moment, I guess, or the inciting incident, uh, happened on December the 7th when Trump tweeted out to summon his fans to Washington, promising that there would be a wild protest on the grounds of the Capitol. And that certainly happened. But at that point, you've been managed to get hold of a bunch of communications between some of Trump's fans. Right. Work by the Advanced Democracy Incorporated, a non-profit research group. So tell us about the material that you got hold of that you've written about here. So what what ADI shared with me was um, uh, a lot of postings on a particular web board, image board, that is called um, the Donald.win and that was originally a thread on Reddit, and they got thrown off of Reddit. So they started their own thing called the Donald.Win. And so obviously big MAGA Trump fans, but also white nationalists and all kinds of people. And so it was on December 19th um, that Trump 
in, you know, called everybody to come to the Capitol grounds on January 6th for what he called a wild protest. And waiting just almost instantaneously was a website called wildprotest.com, which where you could arrange to, you know, get a ride to the Capitol um, if you're going to be part of the wild protest and all of this kind of stuff, right? A lot of organizing on that website. So on the 19th, as soon as Trump sends this out, calling his um, his followers uh, to uh, the Capitol, and they are well-versed in the meaning of the day of January 6th, that it would be the day that the uh, presidential election was certified in Congress. So uh, on the 19th of December, he puts out this tweet, and all of a sudden, I mean, there's all of this activity on this image board um, suggesting the building of a gallows, and it goes on for days. I mean, you you have uh, one guy posting, um, he borrows the branding of the Home Depot and does a DIY graphic of how to build the gallows, complete with measurements for how, you know, lengths of lumber and all of that. Um, you have one guy saying, well, you know, we really should have a guillotine, you know, for effect. And another guy says, well, that's too French. That's <laughs> not American enough. <laughs> Freedom fries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is really chilling, though. I mean, these guys are saying, I mean, they're, they're really like talking about what kind of supplies to get, where to get them, uh, what kind of rope to use. They're talking about who they would like to kill, which is, you know, the you know who you would imagine them wanting to kill uh chuck schumer the senate uh, majority leader adam schiff who led the first impeachment trial uh jerry nadler who um was part of all of that as well nancy pelosi maxine waters whom they hate just for being black and saying what she thinks um and of course mitt romney who they really 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 hate <laughs> and of course they so, were talking about paracord too, parachute cord to hang them with and then they realized oh maybe that might chop their heads off and that might be too gruesome but then some of them that thought might that might be, be good, right? Might cool, right, exactly <laughs> I mean, it's just I mean, I, I'm not laughing because this is to be taken lightly, I'm laughing because the absurdity is so real, right? The absurdity is so real. And also, um, I'm sure you go through this too, Ian. Uh, you and I have laughed ruefully at many exploits of the right. I mean, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry, you know? Well, they've taken over the Republican Party. It's Trump's party. We've never had a former president with the power that he has. I mean... Uh, this is true. I mean, Jimmy Carter built houses and... George W. Bush painted pictures of little dogs, and this guy controls the GOP. Mm -hmm. And we're heading into an authoritarian era. They may well win in 2022 by cheating. They've decided yep. not to compete but to cheat. So we're into a very difficult point. In other words, what happened on January the 6th has not ended. It, it's, it's, no, that was the beginning. No, prelude, yeah. Exactly. prelude. So the I, I agree, yeah. Well, I was going to say that Concurrently with the December 19th tweet from Trump promising a wild time in Washington to come and stop the steal, concurrent with that, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, 
he called upon his followers to go to Washington to let Trump know, quote, that the people are behind you. And he also mm -hmm. went on to hope that Trump would call up his militia, the uh, Goath Keepers, to help the president stay in power. And this is according to court documents now coming out from all these investigations and of some of the perpetrators of the storming of the Capitol, those that breached the barrier. Apparently, Rhodes was outside. He didn't actually go in. And you saw the military stack. He was stack. too clever for that. He was yeah, too clever but he, for that. Yeah. There was that military stack formation that went in. That was They were the Oath Keepers, and he was in communication right. with them. But Rhodes went on to say in, in the call after Trump's December 19th call that not only did he want to have his militia help President stay in power, he warned that they would be going into a, quote, bloody, bloody civil war and a bloody, mm -hmm. you can call it an insurrection or you can call it a war or a fight. This is according to court documents. And furthermore, apparently there was some planning going on, and I don't know whether Roger Stone was involved in this planning because he's been close to both the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. But right. they knew... They knew enough not to bring their weapons into Washington, D.C., but apparently they stashed them in Virginia, and the plan was to take the Capitol in, which they almost did, to hang Mike Pence and do all whatever they wanted to do, but then to secure the Capitol, to occupy it, they would then right. bring their weapons in from Virginia. So that's something that apparently is being looked at by these investigators. So... Little wonder the Republicans didn't want this bipartisan commission. Well, yes, that's one very good reason they don't want this bipartisan commission. Uh, the other reason being that um, that they it makes it really hard to gaslight about what really happened, right? I mean, they, it makes it so much easier to create these false narratives, especially as they're doing with these fake audits of the election all through the um, the country. Right. I mean, they've got one going in Arizona right now that is farcical. They're trying to do the same thing in Pennsylvania. These are states that Trump expected that he might lose, but that were important to him. And so even before the election happened, he started floating that false narrative of a stolen election. Um, Bannon even said Pennsylvania is the key that unticks the lock for Trump. And then, you know spun this uh, false uh, story about how Pennsylvania was going to be stolen by well, black people. <laughs> I guess you haven't heard the good news, Adele. According what? to Sidney Powell, the <laughs> Trump's lawyer, he's going to be yeah. he's going to be installed in uh, yes. in August. In I mean, August, he's right. coming back. Yeah, yes, I mean, the, it's an alternative version of the U.S. Constitution, but. So what? You know, we have alternative facts, you know. You can install a president who lost. <laughs> right. And the thing is that, you know, that in Pennsylvania, that Cyber Ninja's outfit that has uh, been hired to do the audit, which has never has no expertise in electoral um, audits at all. Apparently, they have subcontracted Sidney Powell's um, nonprofit uh, for part of that and trying to bring her into Pennsylvania, uh, trying to set up one of those audit situations for 
Pennsylvania so they can muck around with the actual tallies and make a false claim and do whatever they need to do to rig the vote for 2022, right? Uh, so, you know, Powell's predictions serve a purpose for her. It keeps her followers behind her. Yeah, well, Trump sure knew how to pick quality people, didn't he? <laughs> he surely did. Well, he, what did line. he know? Well, he's a confederacy of sociopaths, you know, and um, it sort of made the biggest sociopath win, right? I mean, the, the thing about sociopaths cutting deals with sociopaths is that they never know which who's going who's to turn on them. Uh, so there's a lot going on right now. So many moving pieces, Ian, especially with these investigations that the DOJ is doing and all the FBI arrests. I mean, I am breathless trying to keep up with it, I'll tell you the truth. And again, I'm speaking with Adele Stan, who's a journalist based in Washington, D.C., who specializes in covering the intersection of religion and politics. She's currently the director of Right Wing Watch, a project of People for the American Way, where her latest article is Far-Right Trump Fans Plan to Hang Lawmakers Within Hours of His Call for Wild Protest. New research has revealed that January the 6th rioters plotted to murder U.S. officials weeks before the attack. So... Does that mean then, given what the DOG and the FBI are doing here, and by the way, the foreign minister of Russia, Lavrov, has mm -hmm. yesterday said that on the agenda in Geneva, between, in the, summit, the upcoming summit between Putin and Biden, Putin is yeah. going to bring up the persecution going on in the United States against those patriots who stormed the capital. Oh, Russia has decided to take <laughs> take the side of these white supremacists and neo-Nazis and anti-Semites, etc., as well, though they are Trump's victims of uh, anti-democratic American hypocrisy. Sure. Well, that grievance narrative, right, is always there. It's all they always convert it into their own, you know, a story of their own victimization, whether for being Christian or for being white or for owning guns or whatever. Right? They they cast themselves as the target. Um, but you know, I think that it's interesting that Lavrov uh, is um, is saying that. Um, you know, I wonder if that's a nice you know, pay off to Trump for whatever intel he gave Lavrov in the Oval Office about um, about the Israeli army. Do you remember those days? I mean, when he right. had both Kislyak and um, who was then the uh, Russian ambassador to the U.S. and Lavrov in uh, the Oval Office and he got in trouble, Trump got in trouble for sharing intel with Lavrov. Right. And, and there were no yeah. American press allowed in, only only the Russian press. Um, oh, that's well, right. Only the Russian. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think American, they allowed American, American, one American photog or something like that. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. so given that the Republicans obviously didn't want this bipartisan commission, even though it was, it was negotiated with Republicans and all the concessions were met by the Democrats and still at the end of the day, they couldn't get 10 Republican senators and obviously not only what we're talking about is what they don't want the public to learn about there's also the real possibility that Paul Gosar and Mo Brooks particularly Gosar was responsible for a reconnaissance group of white supremacists he himself of course is an avowed white supremacist and his entire right. large family have not just gone public 
saying, for God's sake, don't vote for this guy. They've actually made commercials to stop his political right. career without any effect because he comes from a safe district of gun-toting lunatics in Arizona. In Arizona, mm-hmm. So that's a huge smoking gun. So apart from what the DOJ and the, and the FBI are doing, which basically all we get out from leaks from court documents, we get court documents but, and leaks, etc. So when do you think there's going to be something stood up here that where we can get the full picture? Because clearly the Republicans do not want the truth to come out about what happened, not just so much what happened on January the 6th, but who was behind it and who planned it. And there's so right. much smoking swirling around Roger Stone, and we know that he was coordinating with Trump. It's pretty clear, it always has been to me, that Trump has his fingerprints on this as well. Absolutely, and Bannon was really coordinating the propaganda that um, that uh, brought the whole Stop the Steal thing together. I mean, I had seen the Stop the Steal crew um, in 2019 at a conference, at a conference, where was it? Oh, in St. Louis at the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And there was Ali Alexander and Jack Posobiec and all of those guys. Um, who's the other one? Um, Brandon Straka. I mean, it was the whole crew. There they were. So they've been planning things for things like this for a while. And Bannon was there, too. So, and then if you look at the stuff he was saying on his podcast leading up to the insurrection, all of the incitement there. I did a piece uh, in the April issue of the New Republic all about Bannon's role in it. So, yes, you have Bannon, you have Stone. Um, these guys all hate each other, but, you know, they get the band back together when they need to, when it's mutually beneficial. And, you know, they're all still working for the same boss. Well, I thank you for joining us, Adele Stan. I appreciate it. Always uh, good to be with you. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Adele Stan, who's a journalist based in Washington, D.C., who specializes in covering the intersection of religion and politics. She is currently the director of Right Wing Watch, a project of People for the American Way, where her latest article is far-right Trump fans plan to hang lawmakers within hours of his call for wild protest. New research has revealed that January the 6th rioters plotted to murder U.S. officials weeks before the attack. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the candidate. Iran's supreme leader has approved to be the next president and how this deeply unpopular theocratic regime has been helped in part by Trump's hardline policies. And you are listening to the Background Briefing with Ian Masters on WMNF Tampa 88.5. And hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. And the team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keep you informed around the clock. All year long, we are committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app, Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by WMNF and Citizens Insurance Online at citizensfla.com. And be sure to stay tuned for the surly women, surly feminists of the revolution coming on up after NPR News at 11 o'clock, at 12 o'clock.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nad Hashimi, who is the Director of the Centre for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashimi. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Nada. And it's pretty depressing the lineup now of the approved candidates that have been approved by Iran's Guardian Council. And one of them that looks like the favourite is the favourite, apparently, of the 82 year old Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei, and that is Ibrahim Raisi. And he, of course, is linked to the mass executions that took place in 1988 after the end of the Iran-Iraq war. So he is, what, a consummate hardliner? How would you describe him? Uh, a consummate hardliner and devotee of the supreme leader um, would be the best description. And you're absolutely right, um, Ian, that this is a very depressing election. Elections in Iran were never free and fair, given the uh, candidates that have been announced who are eligible to run for president, it's pretty clear that Iran is has taken a major step in the direction of a hard authoritarian regime. Um, and so this is effectively a rigged election, an engineered election that no one is really excited about in Iran or, or anywhere else in the world. But that doesn't matter, does it, to the people that run Iran? I mean, it's always been this hardline clique and there is democracy, although it's somewhere between democracy and window dressing. And it looks so all of people allied with Rouhani, the current guy, they're out. So is the signal here that the hardliners want to proceed with nuclear weapons and forget about trying to revive the JCPOA? Uh, no, I don't think that's the signal. I think the hardliners will eventually accept a revival of the Iran nuclear agreement or the JCPOA. Uh, Iran stands to benefit economically. But I think very much the JCPOA is part of the calculation here. My reading of why this election is effectively rigged um, has to do with the internal crisis of legitimacy that the regime is facing in the eyes of its own people, the fact that its base of support has significantly narrowed uh, over the last several years as a result of the economic sanctions, um, various protest movements that have killed hundreds of people, and the general discontent that exists in society, that the regime is not going to tolerate any form of uh, independent thinking or independent uh, political leader who may want to sort of take the Islamic Republic in a slightly different direction. Hence the banning, as you just said, of anyone who has an inkling of a reformist orientation. The link with the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, I think is the following. If you go back roughly, you know, to 2015 when the agreement was signed, that was a huge moment of elation and celebration within Iranian civil society and among Iranian democratic and reformist forces. They viewed the signing of this nuclear agreement as a important turning point in terms of Iran's relationship with the outside world, in terms of the prospects of a better economy, which would allow the middle class to start to breathe again. Uh, and to perhaps organize um, resistance to the authoritarian regime. The hardliners were very worried about what 
came after the signing of the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement. Their big fear was that um, there would be public pressure and support from the reformist faction of the ruling elite for greater global integration, signing more peace deals and in economic and political relationships with the outside world. The hardliners um, were petrified. In fact, I was following the debate very closely in 2015. And what you had was essentially a, a series of competing speeches by Iran's supreme leader repeating the same theme, that the Iran nuclear agreement with the United States is a one-off. There will be no further contact with the West. Anyone who thinks that this is a turning point needs to think again. That's it. We just made a strategic calculation where we had to engage in a dialogue with the United States to resolve this issue. On the other side, Rouhani, who was president at the time, was saying, no, this is a major you know, step in terms of Iran's integration uh, with the global community. It'll open Iran up. And so that that the prospect of that repeating itself uh, uh, this time around in 2021, when it looks like there there will be a revival of this agreement, I think has really scared the Iranian hardliners. They want to make sure that there's no dissent at the ruling elite level. And so they've effectively blocked um, any candidate that has an independent sort of political orientation. And they want to make sure that when this nuclear agreement is signed and the economy starts opening up, uh, there will be no chance or dissent or discussion of Iran's integration into the international community. They want to have full control over Iran's foreign policy and critically over Iran's domestic policy. So I think that's fundamentally what's going on. And again, I'm speaking with Nada Hashemi, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. So is what's going on here in the broader sense of these sort of guerrilla under the radar cold war whatever you want to call it between iran and israel where there's been a bunch of ships sabotaged and there's of course the iranian the biggest ship in the iranian navy caught on fire and sunk in the gulf of oman at this point we don't know whether that was a result of covert israeli activity or whether it was just an accident aboard the ship but that's what's going on in the region and particularly over syria where the israelis are trying to stop the iranians from building a permanent kind of bridgehead there and it seems to me that the dynamic is a kind of symbiosis between netanyahu who may be on his way out and ayatollah Khamenei. that they sort of both need each other is that what's going on? In other words, what legitimacy does this dreadful government have in Iran, apart from the fact that they're saying we're protecting the country from the Western imperialists and Israelis who they are, seem to be obsessed with? No, I think that's that's basically correct, Ian. The Islamic Republic knows that it doesn't have popular support, particularly among the middle class, particularly uh, among young people, and so they play up the nationalist card and they play up their nationalist credentials and they cynically invoke very powerful themes of Iranian history and Iranian politics that um, resonate among Iranians across the political spectrum that revolve around Iran's very troubled relationship with outside powers, imperialist powers uh, that have tried to subjugate and humiliate Iran. And so the supreme leader has been able to 
I regret to say somewhat successfully, you know, play that nationalist card that we are standing up to Donald Trump, who is trying to bully us, who's trying to subjugate us, who is trying to uh, do what Western powers have done in the past. Um, And that has had some resonance. In fact, it has shifted the internal political conversation in Iran away from the myriad of domestic problems uh, that Iran is facing related to human rights, democracy, economic mismanagement, and has focused a lot of the national attention on external threats. And it's very hard to sort of, you know, ignore the external threats because Donald Trump did have an open policy of trying to bring Iran to its knees. Uh, Some of his closest foreign policy advisors were openly talking about regime change. And that unfortunately rallied, you know, public opinion in Iran around the theme of nationalism, around the theme of sort of um, protecting the country from external threats. You know, prior to the arrival of Donald Trump, as I just indicated a moment ago, there were deep factional rivalries and divisions among Iran's ruling elite over the future orientation of the country after the Iran nuclear agreement. Does Iran open up, engage, or does it close down and maintain its sort of, you know, um, tense relationship with the West? After Donald Trump came to power with his talk of regime change and punitive sanctions. Those divisions withered away. Everyone rallied around the, the the Iranian flag. And so the regime, unfortunately, has been able to, you know, cynically manipulate this. I would argue that ironically, for all of the bravado and claims that, you know, Iran has been weakened as a result of Donald Trump's hawkish policy, I think, objectively speaking, it's actually the reverse. The hardliners in Iran have benefited internally by um, rallying people around the flag by crushing opposition and by preventing the Iranian economy from opening up, meaning that, you know, uh, smuggling networks and those aspects of the economy that are controlled by the IRGC, you know, dominate Iran's internal economy. So this is one of the great ironies of U.S. foreign policy is that there's a lot of, you know, tough talk against Iran. But the way that this, this often plays out is that it's the regime, it's the hardliners that benefit, it's civil society that loses, it's the um, pro-reformist and democracy forces that pay the big price. And the question of Israel fits into this narrative. You know, I think, let's not forget that Israel, not too long ago, assassinated Iran's top nuclear scientist. Uh, More recently, in the middle of the negotiations in Vienna, Israel staged a, a cyber attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. I suspect this recent attack on the you know, Iranian tanker that has just gone uh, up in smoke possibly could be an Israeli attack. Israel has its interests in sabotaging these nuclear negotiations in Vienna. I think very much the motive of hardliners within Israel, Netanyahu or, or his successor, is they want the global spotlight to be on Iran and its destabilizing activities in the region its nuclear program. Netanyahu and the Likud do not want the global spotlight to be where it was a couple of weeks ago on Israel's brutal treatment of the Palestinians and the situation in Gaza. So I think that's fundamentally why you see these types of tensions ratcheting up and why you see these types of, you know, very provocative moves on on behalf of Israel to really try and, I think, thwart the possibility of the revival of the Iran nuclear agreement, because as long as this nuclear agreement is unresolved and as long as there's reports of Iranian enrichment, that focus global attention on Iran and it takes the spotlight away from what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. So this new guy, this guy that's on the list of seven approved candidates who's likely to be the next president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, 
he's a hanging judge essentially behind these mass executions that took place in 1988. So is there a way to describe for an American audience what life is like in Iran? The educated middle class and women and particularly the young feel completely alienated from this dreadful government. I guess it would be kind of, you don't really have a political example in this country of a theocracy, but if this country were run by Pat Robinson and Jerry Falwell and a bunch of corrupt televangelists and they instituted policies like The Handmaid's Tale and we just lived an extremely repressed life, not as bad as in Saudi Arabia, of course, I might add, our great ally, but still pretty hideous. Is there any way to get that across, what theocracy means? Because I, you know, the the backbone of the Republican Party are the Christian evangelists. And, the, and in fact, the cornerstone of support for Israel comes from the same people. And I've always thought it was highly ironic that here we are having an enemy in, in the regime in uh, Iran, a theocratic regime, but we're in bed with theocrats at home, at least the Republican Party is, and now the Republican Party is completely controlled by Donald Trump. So is there a way you can describe, Nada, what it's like for an American audience to understand what the Iranian theocracy is like? Um, that's a great question, Ian. Um, I think the analogy with um, a political system controlled by American evangelicals comes pretty close to understanding um, the theocracy in Iran. I would add to that comparison, you know, a lot of QAnon whacked conspiracy theories about how the world is run as being part of the official, um, you know, national discourse. So that comparison is, 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 I think, completely apt and appropriate. But I think what's also not sufficiently acknowledged is notwithstanding, you know, hardline control of Iran, effectively a theocracy, civil society is very active in Iran. I mean, right now it's crushed and it's broken, but over the course of the last 42 years of the Islamic Republic, you have these very important sort of countervailing developments within Iranian society that have pushed back against authoritarianism in Iran, particularly with respect to the question of women's rights. So one of the things that happened in Iran after the 79 revolution is that you have this revolutionary regime that comes in power and it does invest quite heavily in um, a literacy campaign. And what you see over the course of a couple of decades is Iran's literacy rates, both among men and women, increase significantly, increasingly larger numbers of women, many of them from conservative religious families end up getting a higher education and going to university uh, in such great numbers where until relatively recently, you know, 60% of the university student body was made up of women. And this produces its own internal dynamic that comes back to haunt the Islamic Republic in the sense that you have an indigenous. You've been listening to background briefing with Ian Masters here on WMNF, Tampa, St. Pete, and around the world on WMNF.org. Stay tuned for the Surly Feminists of the Revolution with Liz Lanier and Donna Davis right after NPR News here on WMNF 88.5, your community conscious radio station. As always, thanks for listening and supporting